Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast, where we're all about commander, data, and dad jokes. I'm Joey Schultz and I'm joined by my fantastic co-hosts. Up first, he wishes that the card Donna Noble had the creature type Noble. It's Matt Morgan. I was talking to my friend's sons the other day and I told them, actually, I can do magic. I can do some telekinesis. And they said, well, Uncle Matt, can you show me? I said, I can't show you because then it would be telekinephews. Oh, <laughs> that one took me a moment, but that's adorable. Telekinesis. That's super funny. I love that. I mean, they, they are cute kids and all, but uh, sorry, uh, the cat's out of the bag on that one. I couldn't show them my magic tricks. <laughs> That's great. All right. Up next, he cast the spell once upon a time. And when he did, he flipped over the top cards of his deck and revealed the card twice upon a time. It's Dana Roach. Um, I'm actually taking a trip next summer to Europe. Um, I think Switzerland's a place I want to see the most. I I'm not sure why, but like the flag's a big plus. Another pirated dad joke from the early years of doing dad jokes on this podcast. But Dana, I was going to say. It, it, it's cool. a reboot. I mean, this is a reboot of, of Matt's. A remix. Okay. <laughs> there we go. Oh, no. Yeah. I love, I love that Matt has like this just absolutely analytical, like, no, I know that I've done that dad joke before. He has it logged. He has like, like a, a I, perfect I don't, memory for it. Yeah. I don't know much about like names and dates and especially this game, but I remember a dad joke. Yeah, I was just like, don't know all the new cards necessarily, maybe even some face blindness in there, but dad jokes, that's on lock. Mind is a steel trap for dad jokes. Steel trap. That's so terrific. Dana, what is it that we're talking about in this week's episode, man? We're going to be talking about risky cards, the ones that are worth it, maybe not worth it. Yeah, this should be very, very fun to get into some cards in the 99 of our decks that... Uh, you know, they put us in an interesting spot or maybe cards that are too risky, so risky, in fact, that we don't want to play them. I'm really excited to get into this discussion, but we've got some shout outs to do before we get there. First, I'd like to thank Chase, also known as Mana Curve, for their help in editing the show. You can find them online at Mana Curves. And if you'd like to support the show, you can do so by liking, subscribing, doing all that on YouTube, subscribing to your local podcast app, or you can go to patreon.com slash edhretcast, where we have patron tiers of all sorts of levels. Whether you want to join the Discord community for just $2 a month, you want to see all of the challenges stats that we've done over the years, there's all that and more over at patreon.com slash edhretcast, including the weekly patron shout out. Everybody loves it. So this week, we're going to give a very special shout out to Anthony Nixon. So I had a joke. But Joey went about Nixon the joke. <laughs> Nixed the joke indeed. I'd be I'd be Nixon the dad jokes all over the place. Kiboshed is what Kibosh. <laughs> we, we could say, yes. Um, but either way, thank you so much, Anthony, for the support. We definitely appreciate it. Yeah, seriously, thank you so, so much, Anthony. It is such wonderful support from the patrons. It means the world to us, really, truly. Okay, guys, let's get into our topic. We're talking about risky cards in the Commander format. And this is a topic that we've done something similar to in the past. We have previously talked about risky commanders, specifically, like the, the commander lends itself to a particular strategy, like Jared Carthalian giving the monarch away, for example, or Grevin Predator Captain needs you to lower or your life total a whole whole bunch this episode we're not going to be talking about specific legends rather we want to focus on the cards in the 99 instead uh so dana i'll throw it to you i guess when it comes to risky cards where do you want to start so i think maybe the first thing we'll talk about here is is cards that we're not going to talk about 
Um, no. oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, I think there's a collection of cards that, that, that might get lumped into this, but I, I don't think they really are. The, the main one to me is EDH staple Chaos Warp. Chaos Warp's a risky card. Like, there's a risk you are going to flip over something absolutely heinous and have it come into play. <laughs> But generally, it, it, the risk and reward, like that's just more often than not, if you are willing to cast a Chaos Warp, the thing that you are removing is probably a serious problem, if not a game-ending problem. And maybe something terrible will come into play, but that's better than losing to that Blightsteel Colossus that you were trying to deal with that was coming at you hasted and going to remove you from the game. Um, you know, Chaos Warp also hits permanent types that red can't really deal with most of the time. So like, mm. there's a bunch of reasons you run chaos warp. There's a risk to it, but the risk is worth doing because it does things that you can't otherwise do in those colors. And you will occasionally take a loss from chaos warp because without having chaos warp, you take the loss way more often. Tybalt's trickery, I think is like that too. I mean, the, the spell that you're countering is definitely worth countering. Yeah, that's actually a good thing to clarify as well. There are some cards out there that probably seem risky, but in actual execution, they're definitely worth it. So the bulk of this episode, yeah, we're not going to talk about the Chaos Warps of the world, but I'm sure that there are other examples of cards out there that maybe initially seem risky, but we are playing because, in fact, the risk is mitigated by how it is that we play or our deck building or the times that they're executed, stuff like that. Well, I'm I'm surprised that Dana started off with saying Chaos Warp because... Your life is a resource. And so <laughs> Sylvan Library, Black Market Connections, all of those types of cards. Mm. I feel like that's kind of the, one of the big cards in, in just the, the category of these where you're paying life to get some sort of benefit. That's one of the first big hurdles that I think a lot of new players get themselves into and is, why would I pay two life to have this land come in and play untapped? I can just play a basic instead. <laughs> why would I pay four life to draw one extra card? There's all those types of situations where... Yes, it initially looks like a downside, but then when you see it kind of executed to its fullest extent, that's when you're like, oh, I get it now. But those are both cards, too, where like when that downside becomes too much, you can just not do it. You could just not draw the extra cards, both of those. Mm -hmm. I don't do that very often. I just keep drawing. But like you don't have to do that. <laughs> There's a downside there. You are paying a price. But when that price gets too costly, you can just not do it. It would be different if they were ones where they were forcing that every single turn. And there was a, you know, a point where it's definitely going to burn you. It doesn't necessarily have to do that. Like there's, there, those are cards that make you pay a price, but I wouldn't call them risky because when you get to the point where there's a risk, you can just not put yourself in that position. Well, and also like in the case of Black Market Connections, for instance, paying the three life to get the three two changeling token. I mean, that three two is probably going to block something that has more than three power. So it is, in fact, saving you life a lot of the time when you use it in that way and paying life to draw cards. I mean, Necropotence, I'm getting so much card advantage off of that, that the benefits far, far, far outweigh the costs in basically every single scenario. I'd always be happy to see that one. Um, I, I, another that I'll put in here would also probably be like, settle the wreckage type of effects or a card that i really enjoy is winds of abandon mm -hmm. like yeah those are mass path to exile effects you're giving your opponents a whole lot of lands and that might seem risky but the times that you play a settle the wreckage or a winds of abandon and you can just crack back for lethal on an opponent's now completely empty board girl they don't got time to use all the lands that you gave them because they're dead now <laughs> so like in the actual execution of those cards the risk is mitigated by the times that they are 
like necessary and and when they will appear so again those are probably some cards that like oh they seem risky and maybe that you wouldn't want to put them into a deck but the times that i've seen them played man have they swung a game completely and often won a person the game so that's another example of those cards that might seem risky but are actually totally worth the effort and probably won't be the main focus of our episode but we're spending a lot of, a lot of time talking about the cards we're not talking about uh this is kind of funny <laughs> well why don't we just jump in then to some categories of types of cards on why we don't play them because of whatever reason. So I, I know for me, giving your opponents any sort of just onboard power, I hate doing that. Giving buffs, giving just anything to your opponents. So stuff like Primal Vigor to me, mm. yes, my deck likely is going to be built to abuse it, but giving that door to for opponents to walk through, get a lot of power out of it. I, I don't love that. We talk a lot on this show about Coat of Arms. Coat of Arms is an overrun effect. It's not an Anthem effect. And there's a big difference in how those are executed mm -hmm. and why we would, you know, make that distinction. Yeah, Primal Vigor being a doubling season for everybody. I'm, I'm going to level with you. That's probably like the reason that we made this episode because every, every time that I've seen Primal Vigor in play, it has not won the controller of the Primal Vigor the game. It has fully like enabled someone else to make either so many tokens or buff up all of their stuff so much that someone else was able to run away with the extra resources that that card gave that it was just like, ah, that was a real risk to put onto the battlefield. And Matt, I like the distinction there between that and Coat of Arms because Coat of Arms is also a symmetrical ability, but that is again one of those cards that you can, by, by choosing when you deploy it, you can mitigate that risk completely because you turn it into more of a sorcery and then the game is over as opposed to a persistent thing on the battlefield. So there are things that can be mitigated with timing. And there are totally ways where Primal Vicar could be one of those cards, but in general, giving that symmetrical double bonus buff to everybody at the table, I've seen opponents really, really easily abuse that type of effect. So even if your deck contains more of the things that Primal Vicar could abuse, that is still a tough sell to put into a deck, I think at least in my case. Yeah, for me personally, on, on a lot of these cards, the reason I don't like them is the feel of lack of control. Mm. Like, I don't know what my opponent is going to do with the buff I provided them. <laughs> that is out of my hands. My, I, I have done something, and at that point, my opponents might possibly kill me based on a thing that I did. Now, Coat of Arms... I can't control that necessarily, except for you can a little bit in the right deck. Like I've read this for a lot of years in my Tauran Sky Summoner deck, because I'm not playing this on turn four or something and letting it sit there and be in like, well, I hope no one else has a bunch of creatures that they're going to attack me with. I'm dropping this when I have eight drakes out right? and I'm killing everybody before that they can take advantage of it. So like, this is a card that I have played in decks. And the reason I have put in decks is I can control to a degree how much of a benefit my opponents get from it. Evolutionary Escalation works similarly. You can put three plus one counters on a creature you control and then put three plus one counters on a creature your opponents control. I've got some control over that. I put them on a creature that's going to probably have some kind of a huge benefit because it's in a plus one counters deck and I may well have ways to double those counters or triple those counters. And I'll put the other three on one of my opponent's Sakura Tribe Elder mm. that is either going to get sacrificed and go away or it's going to make them not want to sacrifice and get the benefit, whatever. I, I have some control over where those go. So that's, for me, again, the, the real difference in a lot of these is how much control I have or I have over how effective the card is. 
Well, and a tragic thing about some of these is that often risky cards are also like really fun. <laughs> like, and, and and like honestly, that can be enough reason to play them if you want to sow a little bit of chaos and in, into the the play experience. Sure. If that's what you're up to, then totally lean into it completely. And, and in fact, a card that we've mentioned liking on the show in the past is Crescendo of War, which is a white enchantment from the very first Commander 2011 set. Uh, a white four mana enchantment that says at the beginning of each upkeep, put a strife counter on Crescendo of War. Attacking creatures, not just your attacking creatures, all attacking creatures get plus one plus oh for each strife counter on this enchantment, but blocking creatures you control get plus one plus oh for each strife counter on Crescendo of War as well. So this is the thing that like hyper charges all combat steps and it just keeps going bigger and bigger and bigger every single turn. And honestly, the things that that does to a game, the stakes that get increased and increased, and it isn't a completely symmetrical effect because there's a slight extra bonus for you, but in general, it's definitely the case that this is the thing that your opponents could totally abuse if you are not able to control it, like you were just saying there, Dana. I think that this still could be fun to put into a deck, but I've got a tokens deck, and as much as I've considered this one, it has not made it into my roster. <laughs> I have not played it because I'm just like, man, it, it, it would be fun, but it would probably blow up in my face too. Yeah, I would, and there's cards too, like Fractured Identity, that I, I certainly think this falls into. It's fun, but is it good? Probably not type of category where <laughs> if if a card is worth spending something to get rid of it, why would you want to give it to the two other people at the table? <laughs> and I mean, yeah, you can do the phage trick where you give everybody a phage, the the one where it enters the battlefield. And if you didn't cast it, every, you lose the game. Well, yeah, that, that's all well and good, but that's very narrow to put a card in your deck. Uh, why would you want to give somebody a creature that is worth removing? Because that just means there's two more on the battlefield you have to deal with. And since this is a sorcery, you have to deal with theirs before you actually get to use the one that you got for yourself. Mm. When I think that's why I know two cycles of cards that I personally really like in my decks. I know both of you don't, though, is the vows and the impetus cycles oh, yeah. where you're putting them on creatures that opponents control. And basically the, those creatures can't attack you with, with the vows or the impetuses where they're goaded. So they have to attack and they can't attack you until there are no other opponents. I like those a lot because, like Dana said, you have control over that. So you're you're moving the board forward. You're controlling what creature is getting that so you can choose the most opportune thing. So if you're giving it to some infecting creature, well, you can make sure that that player picks off the other two players before you have to worry about it. So it's, it's a way to kind of fog for yourself or just make sure, okay, the rest of the board might be scary, but I don't have to worry at least about this specific thing, which a lot of times is better than removal sometimes because it ha you still have to get rid of the other two players. And that's what's really motivating you playing these cards. Uh, I'll clarify real quick. The vows, I'm not a fan of. I do like the impetus cards. Um, some of them are expensive. Like the green one is pretty expensive. Yeah. But like I do have ghoulish impetus and I think psychic impetus uh, each in a different deck. Um, and, and yeah, I do appreciate that those like do kind of turn a potential problem into a potential asset. And that is kind of neat. Uh, the risk involved here, I think, is just like sometimes the thing that you need getting rid of is like more of a utility creature or a commander that isn't mm -hmm. like necessarily punching really hard or or it's got like a tap ability and you're just like dang it i wish i could do something actually it's it's static ability is actually the thing that's frustrating me right here um and there are a lot of people who are able to like cleverly get around the stuff that the impetus would do so in some cases it does feel like oh i wish i had a proper removal spell here but the impetuses in particular i am just kind of like it, it's fun to make that a you problem instead of a me problem <laughs> so yeah yeah well, guys, so far in this episode, we've talked a lot about stuff going outward, the risk of giving your opponent stuff that can eventually, you know, 
potentially come back and blow up in your face or something like that. But there's also the there's another version of risk that definitely needs to be examined here. And that's the inward level of risk, the risk where potentially, uh, Dana, those Sylvan Library-esque type of cards do come back to bite you in the butt because you've gone overboard with them. Or where if your plan does not line up the way that you hope it will, then you've just completely massively set yourself back in potentially a way that you can never come back from. Uh, so there are cards like Phyrexian Processor, for example, which is an artifact that you can pay a bunch of life into to make huge tokens. And in the right deck, hopefully those tokens will life link you back up into getting all of that life that you spent back, or you'll be able to use the tokens in such a way that it doesn't matter how much life you paid. But like, if that thing gets blown up before you're able to make any use of it, then you've just paid a whole bunch of life for nothing, for example. So there are a lot of other cards that are, the risk comes with their self-infliction and, and how much you are yourself putting on the line. Not something that's going out to other people that they could abuse, but something where you, maybe uh, your eyes get too big for your stomach. Uh, when I was first first playing Commander, a friend of mine played almost exclusively token decks. And he had um, Mycheloth in almost all of his decks. Ah. Um, it's it, it's a fungus with Devour 2. And at the beginning of your upkeep, you create a plus one, plus one green sapling token for each counter on Mycheloth. He, would, he got burned every time he cast it. Because every time he'd be like... I'm going to sacrifice, you know, 90% of my tokens I have out in place to put as many counters on it as possible. And then like one swords to plowshares and it's just all gone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, there, this is a situation where like, absolutely, there's a massive upside. But how did how deep of a hole are you going to dig to try to take <laughs> advantage of that? Well, there's there's all sorts of cards that they they look flashy, they look really good, but then sometimes they just don't even work at all. Like you, you can set yourself back, you can just totally whiff. There's there's all sorts of cards. One that I I want to play more often than I do is Hunter's Prowess, and kind of along the same lines, Soul's Majesty, where yeah. you have a big you have a big creature, you want to draw a bunch of cards from it. Well. It's very easy. Okay, well, I'm going to cast this. I'm going to target Soul's Majesty. I'm going to target my commander. Well, like you said, Dana, a simple source of plowshares and all that benefit is gone. All that work you put into it, mm -hmm. it's all for nothing. And, and so it's just, it's, it, I understand the allure to it because I fall right into that. But sometimes it just, yeah, you, you swing for the fences and you just miss. You strike out. Yeah, yeah. The the risk involved with that one is just is dead. <laughs> like the card is just yeah, like dead, completely dead. Or uh, stitch in time is another that comes to my mind in that vein a little bit, where you flip a coin and if you win the flip, you get an extra turn. And in a coin flip deck, you can probably manipulate the results a little bit, and that's really good for you. But if you're just playing and is it deck, I can't say I recommend playing this one because what if you fail and you've just spent a card slot and a whole bunch of mana on like a thing that just like was straight up did nothing, <laughs> did nothing at all. Yeah, I think the things like like the final four spells i think there's there's also last chance and warrior's oath i think they're all basically the same thing where you take an extra turn after this one and then you lose the game at the end of that turn <laughs> um i mean there, there's i think those those see a good bit of play in like cedh because they're used in decks where you're gonna win very often if you have that extra turn they're they're, they're you're being intentional about using them in a situation where you're going to win and those decks are explosive and intend to function in a way where like you can see that winning turn coming and you've set that up. Outside of that environment, there's a whole lot of variables to worry about that make casting a spell that just says you're going to lose next turn if you don't kill everybody 
much more risky than it is in the super competitive environment. Yeah, th there's ways that you can get around. Like, say you you plan on you know uh, having a delay trigger and you play Sundial the Infinite. Mm. Well, you can just have somebody blow up your Sundial. Uh, I know right. one of the wildest things I ever saw when I was playing Modern years ago was somebody cast a Pact of Navigation and countered a spell, which is very important, but then somebody just stone-ranged their fifth land, so they just passed the turn, they untapped and lost because they couldn't pay for the Pact of Negation trigger. There's all sorts of just the you lose the game triggers. I I feel like are easy to get tempted into, mm -hmm. but sometimes players maybe buy off more than they can chew when it comes to these types of cards. Yeah, and demonic pact like you've got the four modes on that one, and you can't choose the same mode twice. Uh, so eventually, like oh, you get great great benefits from it, but then eventually, if you haven't mitigated it, it will lose you the game, or like nine lives to mitigate damage but then if you take too many counters from it then it also will lose you the game lich's mastery there's a whole bunch of those cards that are playing on a knife's edge but man you'd better be really really good at manipulating them because if you don't your own card will just completely kill you and those are fun those are really fun to try and build around but they're also tough they're also tough to try and build around there's a lot of these risk cards out there um ones that like might not work at all um, you know, when we're talking about the final fortunes of the world, where well, you're going to get an extra turn. Um, there are some cards that just are dead sometimes. Um, and this depends entirely on maybe your play style as well. But like, I've had really good luck with Council's Judgment, a voting card. Mm. But I've also seen other people who aren't used to using it have it absolutely do nothing. So uh, uh, how often you play the cards and like what your plan is to can really swing how effective they are. Yeah, very much. A another that I've kind of encountered, and these are ones that I, I feel like I always want to play more of in my deck, are like legendary spells. But if I don't have a legend in play, then I just cannot cast them. And that is getting easier to do because they've been printing so many legends these days. But they are just straight up dead spells if you don't have one of your creatures or maybe like your specifically your commander in play. And that can feel pretty bad. The, the risk is a deck building choice there. Or another uh, that I used to play a bunch of was Blade of Selves. I, I had that in a whole bunch of decks because giving Myriad to a creature sounded really, really cool. But once you're down to a one-on-one... -on -one, that card is also just completely dead. It does literally no single thing for you. And that can also have a bit of a feels bad moment when you run into those situations. And I, I can't lie, that does affect me during deck building about whether or not I want to play those things because of the risk that they maybe do nothing. And, and this is just us talking about like tokens and stuff. I think this gets even more complicated when we move into talking about like the risky cards that actually give your opponents card advantage in some way. Yeah. Those are especially thorny. Those ones make me feel even more like, uh-oh, like, can I afford to play these? I don't know. Yeah, well, if you, if you want to talk about risky propositions, it, Horn of Greed, it's so fundamentally tied to what you're doing in the game of Magic. You're, you're playing lands and letting people draw cards is not really the way to go. This is another card, and I feel like a lot of the cards we're probably going to talk about for the rest of the episode, they're going to be cards that they served a purpose for a time, mm. but people kind of realized, man, Horner Green is great, but letting people draw cards and like, oh, there's another landfall deck at the table. So they're just really cranking out all the cards and they'd probably end up drawing more than I did. That happened all the time. And, and just all the, the howling mind type of effects, unless you're playing a group hug deck, you probably don't want to be playing those anymore because you have so many other ways that are more efficient to not give your opponents cards and, and one thing i know joey you love to point out is a howling of mind effect draws you an extra card 
but it draws your opponents three extra cards every turn. And that just doesn't hold up when you're trying to keep up with the benefits that you're giving out to other players. Yeah, to, to clarify on that is like if you view your opponents as a single opponent, it is like giving a single person three extra cards in, in that regard. Mm-hmm. Not that a single person is drawing three extra cards off of Howling No, Mine. no, no. Well, <laughs> I'm, unless you have Howling Mine and Temple Bell and Dictate a Crew Fix and all the other, like that whole <laughs> yeah. gang. Listen, if you banned the top 200 draw spells in EDH, I still wouldn't run Howling Mine. I <laughs> wow. Would not have card, I would rather not have card draw in a deck than run Howling Mine. I really? I think you are better off not drawing cards. I'm better off being down one cards and having my opponents be up three cards on me. Like I would rather just not draw than I would give my opponents three cards for no mana. Yeah, I, I, I think that that's, I think it's, Howling Mine is a terrible, with the exception of like maybe some particular deck where like you're punishing your opponents for drawing cards or unless you're playing group hug for the particular for the fun of it but like strategically speaking howling mine is is a, a card where your deck is worse if it's in it some bold words for like a terribly popular card and i don't mean that in like it's bad that it's popular but yeah. howling mine is in a huge amount of decks and so yeah saying and that's that not to say it's not fun like, <laughs> I, it, maybe there, there are situations where i get where like you want to create that effect but i think it's a bad card There's 65,000 angry listeners right now, and they're going to let you know that you said that, Dana. Well, so here's another thing that makes these especially risky is, um, I mean, Matt, you just meant 65,000 decks is how much Howling Mine is showing up. Yep. Uh, Smothering Tithe is showing up in 373,256 at time of recording. Um, So like, yeah, playing some of these extra things, it's not even just that you are giving your opponents extra cards that they could use. It's that also at any moment, Smothering Tithe, which shows up in a quarter of decks that are eligible to play it, could come down and really start to abuse all of that extra card draw trigger. So I, I feel like I know what the answer to this one will be. But like, Dana, when you were talking about, you know, the extra card draw for opponents, your thoughts on Secret Rendezvous, my guy, <laughs> the, the three mana white sorcery, you and target opponent each draw three cards. Where yeah, with that one, fella? So I, I, I do think Secret Rendezvous has that thing going on where you can control it a little bit. You can target the person who probably isn't a threat. And I feel like very often there's someone at the table that's missed three land drops in a row and like gotten burned by that last board wipe and hasn't been able to rebuild. And, Mm. and I I don't think you are going to like, I don't really, for the most part, believe you can make friends in EDH. Um, No one's going (laughs) to not kill you because you made them draw three cards. I don't think that's a real thing that happens, but I do think you can like control that to a degree and sculpt it in a way that it benefits you way more than it benefits the other person. That said, I think there's enough other good ways to draw cards that maybe you don't even need to worry about that. I'm I'm not far off with where Dana stands. Yeah, there's always going to be situations where maybe one person, they jump out to an early lead, but then the rest of the, t- the pod kind of gangs up to make sure that they're beaten down. They're kind of brought back to the rest of the pace and maybe they just can't recover. So I, there's been a lot of games. I, I would say I, maybe even half the games that I've been in where one person just gets set back so far and they just can't really recover, mm. giving opponents like that a chance to maybe catch up because you are, you know, Dana said, you're not making friends in a game of EDH. No, you're making friends because of EDH, but not in the game. <laughs> yes. It, maybe you are going to need that person to help take out somebody who is a problem now. And so it's more, it's not so much I'm giving you cards or I don't want to give you cards because I, I have to beat you. It's because I need you to have cards because we have to beat this person. And that's a situation I think has come up a lot more than anything else. And, and Tenuous Truce is a similar type of card as Secret Rendezvous where, mm. yes, we're, we're going to agree that 
I'm not the problem. You're not the problem. This person is a problem and we need to work together to do this. And so kind of incentivizing that tenuous truce quite literally. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I can see why these types of cards get played because you're, you're acknowledging that, Hey, we need to work together to beat this common enemy. Yeah. I think wedding ring is another that potentially falls into that where like there's a mutual benefit going for that. And I do like the interplay that can happen from, from those. Like sometimes you do need help taking down a mutual enemy. I totally get that. The thing is you don't always need, need, need that. Uh, and so for me, when I see that secret rendezvous is showing up in 41,000 decks, I have a little alarm bell, alarm bells in my head to, to full, fully be transparent about where I'm at with this card. I've seen it four times in games of EDH. And every single time, the person who got the free extra cards has won that game. Because yes, maybe you needed help to take down a mutual enemy or something. But in so doing, you have created another even more powerful person, potentially. So just from my completely anecdotal situation here, every time I've seen Secret Rendezvous occur, um, it, it did not go well for the person casting it. They did not end up uh, w winning that game. And to me, that, that strikes me as like a... Mm, I think I personally am going to avoid this one. That's too risky for me. Well, and sometimes it just feels good to be like, I drew three cards. I'm going to, you know, give you three cards. I, I've done a bunch of segues. Joey, would you like to also do a segue of some sort? So, like, sometimes you need to th throw someone a bone when they are way behind. We're not even done talking about the card advantage section here, Dana. Come on, man. <laughs> but sometimes it just feels good to, to get a segue. It just feels Joey. good to help somebody yeah. out who's, who's, who's struggling. We just thought you would want to do it for once, so... All right, yeah, yeah. fine. Well, instead of talking about Skullwinder next, which I was excited to do, Dana, because that has a similar vibe, instead, I guess, I will take the opportunity and have a secret rendezvous so that we can segue into Challenge the Stats. How very, very gracious of you. <laughs> I don't like this evolution of this bit that we've been doing on the show, where instead of stealing it, you've generously decided to give it back. How magnanimous of you. That makes me more uncomfortable somehow. I don't know how you managed to pull that off. It, it is a tenuous truce, both within the cards and with between the three of us. This is, I feel, this feels icky. Okay, well, we're just going to do it. Let's take a quick break for Challenge the Stats because there's so much data on Track that we don't always agree with. So we will be right back after this quick break. Ah, uh, that doesn't feel earned. How dare you, Dana? Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. My challenge this week is brought to us by MJ Brown. Patreon supporter, thank you very much for supporting the show, MJ. We appreciate it. MJ says, I was building my Fight Club deck using Naeth of the Dire Hunt, and I realized that having a lot of instant and sorcery fight spells made Naeth one of the best sources of card draw in the deck. So Naeth is a human warrior, a 3-3. says, whenever one or more creatures you control fight or become blocked, you draw a card. MJ says, I wanted something that acted like her, so if she got removed, I could still draw more cards. Hence, I fell upon Gnarlback Rhino. Gnarlback Rhino was two green-green, so same casting cost as Naeth. It has Trample, and it says, Whenever you cast a spell that targets Gnarlback Rhino, draw a card. 
It's currently only in 28 of about 2,500 Nath of the Dire Hunt decks. It's a simple common 4-4. He triggers every time he is targeted by a fight spell. So having 15 or 20 fight spells in the deck means you're going to get your fair share of card draw off him. And as a 4-4, he's probably going to survive most fights as well. He makes a really great backup for Nath if you have a commander who's either been removed or stolen or who is just too expensive to recast after having been knocked out multiple times. So, yeah, I am very much on board this. It's 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 a card that does exactly what you want your commander to be doing. It's a perfect backup for it, and it's only in 28 decks. It should be in way more for sure. So thank you very much, MJ, for the your, your contribution and for supporting the show. Sweet deal. We'll all move to my challenge next, and this is one that uh, came up uh, in the last weekend that I was playing at the Portland Command Fest. I played against a bunch of fantastic listeners, had some seriously, truly amazing games there, and there was a, a couple of cards that came up in a game against a player named Lily, who I really wanted to shout out here. Um, this was a younger player who had a really fantastic Thalia and the Gitrog Monster deck, which is that Obzon deck that lets you sacrifice stuff to draw all the cards, and Lily made excellent, excellent use of Audric and Majestic Miriarch, which are those really fantastic things that help you spread around or gather a bunch of amazing keywords from your team. So Audric Lunark Marshall, for example, that's the four mana white human that shares any keywords that you have on one creature to all of your creatures. And Majestic Miriarch is that green bird looking kind of creature that absorbs any keywords that your team has. And it also, uh, its power and toughness are equal to double the number of creatures that you control. So it hits like a truck. And when Lily got these cards in play, it was just so much damage, particularly because Thalia and the Gitrog monster, the commander right there has first strike and death touch. So like suddenly none of the players at the table were ready to block like anything <laughs> that she had in play. And, and then she played like a single birds of paradise to give flying. And then suddenly we couldn't block anything. Cards like Audric or Miriarch are pretty common maybe in cards like uh, in decks like Cathrol, for example, since that's a deck that is already themed around sharing tons of keywords. And we also tend to see Audric in like Samut, Voice of Descent, who also has amazing keywords that you want to share around with the whole team. But I also just want to take a, a leaf out of Lily's book here and sort of encourage folks to consider these cards for any commanders that have multiple cool keywords. Like Wilson Refined Grizzly has Trample and Vigilance, for example. But the Miriarch and Audric don't appear on any of its pages where it has a green or white background pair. Or I think Dritz de Worden would especially be powerful for both of these cards because Dritz has double strike natively and Dritz makes a token that has trample. So that's really cool stuff for these cards to absorb. So give Audric and Majestic Miriarch a look for any commander that has a couple of cool keywords. Lily proved to me that you can deal a lot of damage this way and I agree with her that these cards have plenty more homes out there. Well, I'll wrap us up here with my pick. So one thing that I like to do is look at commanders and then compare it to a kind of a similar strategy, maybe that has a color or two difference, anything like that. And just to get help on maybe something that is missing from the commander's page. So King of the Oathbreakers is one of the new Lord of the Rings cards. And I know that Doctor Who just came out, but I'm still excited about Lord of the Rings and all the legends there. And so this Orzov spirit is, it's, it's fantastic. And it has a lot of overlap in the strategy as far as cards like Millicent Restless Revenants. So that was one that came out um, when we were in Innistrad last. It was a pre-con commander. And one card that is not showing up on King of the Oathbreakers at all for all of its spirit synergies, but is showing up on Millicent is Hallowed Spirit Keeper. And this card, I it's just such a great, fantastic creature that benefits from playing a bunch of creatures, having them in your graveyard, but also you're going to create an army of spirits. So Hallowed Spirit Keeper is one white-white 
for a creature avatar that with vigilance that says when hallowed spirit keeper dies create x11 white spirit creature tokens with flying where x is the number of creature cards in your graveyard this is not showing up on king of the Oathbreakers page at all and it's playing black if you're playing against necromancers you'll know that black decks usually have a lot of creatures in the graveyard but why not play something that's going to benefit you from having that now i know hallowed spirit keeper is not a spirit itself it is an avatar so there is a little bit of a line that you have to walk here where you're making sure you're not diluting the amount of creatures and amount of spirits that are in your deck because obviously with King of the Oathbreakers, you want spirits in there so they can phase in and out, make more spirits. But I think with a card that has as much upside as Hallowed Spirit Keeper, it is absolutely a card you want to consider. It's in 28% of Millicent decks, but like I said, it's not on the page at all for King of the Oathbreakers. You're going to make a whole bunch of them and... The tokens can phase in and out, and it's going to trigger King of the Oathbreakers as well. It's just, it's a fantastic way to make a whole bunch of spirits, have them go wide. I, I love this card. Hell Spirit Keeper is a card I, I find myself cutting, but I wish I didn't. <laughs> and I just think in King of the Oathbreakers decks, you want a whole bunch of spirits. Hell Spirit Keeper makes a bunch of spirits. So I think it's just a great match right here. Yeah, I do like those cards that are sort of a, a little insurance policy on like if someone wipes your board, mm -hmm. you've got your board completely back again. Oh, yeah. Like and there are only like, you know, usually we'll do insurance policies like, oh, here's a selfless spirit. I'll sacrifice it to give my board indestructible so that my board won't go anywhere. But there are only so many selfless spirits out there. And another way to make sure you still have a board left over is with cards like that, that if they die, well, the pinata pops and I've still got a whole bunch of stuff left over. So your board wipe didn't get you out of the mess that you uh, thought it would. And so I definitely like cards like that. That is a really cool pick. Yep, me too. All right, well, I am going to segue us back of my own accord and setting, instead of having it handed to me by Dana, you rapscallion, uh, because we were just talking about... <laughs> Holding you responsible for this, I dare you. Uh, we were just talking about cards like uh, the the Secret Rendezvous and all of that. Um, and there are a couple of other cards. And this is one, Dana, that I know you have actually run in your Death Touch deck before. Probably because it was just a creature with Death Touch. But it was Skullwinder. The green snake that when it enters, you get a card back from your graveyard. But you also give an opponent a card back from their graveyard. I mean, I, I've seen some pretty cool moves happen with Skullwinder. In a way that didn't necessarily feel quite as like hugely monumentous in the way that like three extra cards off of a rendezvous has felt i've also seen skullwinder give people back stuff that they definitely shouldn't have back but i don't know they're they're skullwinder is a very political card that i've seen used to pretty interesting effect and i'm wondering whether that's a risky card that dana you have played in the past and do you play it still i do play it still um i get it's i think it's one of those cards that you can control what's going on and, and mm. how i usually wind up playing it is looking at some situation where there's a very clear problem on the board and I maybe have some way to deal with something and someone else has a way to deal with something. And I can usually do a, I will play Skullwinder right now and I will deal with that problem if you use your thing in your graveyard to deal with that problem. Mm. And, and people are usually willing to take you up on that kind of deal. And there's usually that kind of thing in play. There's usually something that you can make a deal with someone Whereas you will remove one threat if they remove another threat. There's just almost always going to be someone in a position that wants to, is willing to make that kind of a swap. So again, it's one of those cards that I feel like I have enough control over the outcome um, that it works out favorably in my case. Gotcha. See, I, I'm torn. Yes, you, you're giving somebody and an it becomes a political deal sometimes, but also if you're just trying to get stuff back for yourself and just kind of 
picking yourself up by your bootstraps or anything like that. You have eternal witness. You have a, a few different variants of that at this point where... Sure. Yes, for a Death Touch specific deck, then yeah, that makes sense to have Skullwinder in there. But if you don't want to be giving your opponents any cards back from their graveyard, you don't need to be playing Skullwinder. There, there's a bunch of other ones that you can be playing if that's the type of gameplay you're going for. I think it's much like that secret rendezvous thing I said where you can definitely probably make it work out in your favor most often. Mm -hmm. Or you could just run something that always works out in your favor, like Eternal Witness or, <laughs> or a Regrowth or, or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that like related to these are also kind of the, the tutory ones, like uh, Scheming Symmetry and uh, Wishclaw Talisman, which are tutors, but you also like potentially will, like you have to let your opponents tutor as well. And that one strikes me as even more dangerous. Like Skullwinder, I feel like, Dana, you're right. It does open up specific, uh, like, like there is a, a very delicate but a very specific instance that that would come up where you see that someone has like a path to exile in their graveyard and you're like i want them to get that back so that they can use it against the person that we need to get that like that thing off of the board whereas like a scheming symmetry like you can say like oh yeah yeah hopefully we get this kind of thing but you don't really know necessarily what it is that people are going to get and they could get just like the most powerful thing as opposed to a removal spell that they've already used or the secret rendezvous giving them you don't know what it is that they're getting and so this the, the school winder specifically giving you back something that like you know and that's kind of that sort of baked into the deal of you casting the card in the first place and choosing that that player mm -hmm. i think that that has a lot of extra built-in safety mechanisms in a way that i i don't feel necessarily as good about the others symmetry is a card that i know a lot of people have used to amazing effect because especially if your deck is powerful enough to just abuse the tutor the instant that you do it and your opponents won't even get a chance to draw that card then yeah go ham that that can totally happen but it's i, I already have I've been avoiding tutors kind of just in general but especially this one because i'm just like you know what i just i can't trust that if i give matt something real good that it's not going to end up killing me in this game because that's just that's just what matt does with the good cards in his deck so i'm just too afraid to do it i mean yeah the the, the solution to never drawing bad cards is only playing good cards that's just <laughs> <laughs> i i somebody said that once and I feel like I'm just going to take credit for it. Fun. There is one, though, that does give opponents card advantage that um, I I've just been enjoying so much, and that's Keen Duelist, uh, where you, you like, enemy Bob with another person, if folks know the Bob reference. You and a target opponent will flip the top card of your decks, and then you'll put them into your hand, but each other will lose life equal to the mana cost of the other person's deck. And so, like, oh, it's a little mental duel. That one, I just love. I've got that in my Yannette deck, so it's top deck manipulation, and I've been able to manipulate it. But honestly, I'm having so much fun with it that I'm just like, do I put this into other places? because like you do get to choose every single turn and I, I don't know i just i just really really enjoy it and ultimately you are getting more benefits than anyone else is so if you give it to one person then another person then another person you are still ending up more positive over the long term in in, in this way um and so i really really enjoy that one that, that's the the one that i definitely enjoy running so that one ooh, it, relying on your opponents not to be playing big and expensive creatures or cards or anything like that that's where I would be so afraid of, I know I'm building my deck correctly, quote unquote, but I, I'm playing against myself and, you know, I, I have a bunch of eight drops in my deck. That's where it gets kind of scary. You have to be very careful about who you're selecting mm. to also draw the cards because as we noticed a few episodes back when it, the average CMC in a deck is going up again. And so cards are getting more expensive. The payoff cards are getting more and more expensive to cast and so keen duelist i understand why you would want to play this but also you have to be super super careful with who you're selecting because otherwise you could be taking a hefty amount of damage 
Yeah, I, I think honestly, if I'm being just completely truthful, this is one of those cards that we're like, it's just exciting enough that that kind of justifies it for me. Fair, just like fair. the moments that it creates sure. are, are just like, you know what? This is just dang fun. Like when you do that flip, it's just like there's a dramaticness to that moment in the game. And that's really what I'm enjoying the most of. But also like the extra advantage, even if it's a little bit dangerous. Like th this is a card where I feel like I I'm willing to live dangerously for the, the fun moments of whoa that it can create. Matt, we were talking about giving other people tokens before when you mentioned Fractured Identity. I'm curious what you think of like the offering cycle, like Sylvan Offering, for example. That's another pretty famous one, X and a green. You give one of your opponents an XX green tree folk, and you also get that. And then you can give an opponent, maybe the same one, maybe a different one, a bunch of elf tokens, and then you also get those elf tokens. So you are ending up more positive out of this deal, but you are giving away a whole lot of bodies. Is that one that you as a green player have ever enjoyed in your decks? or? Is that one kind of like eh, giving away too much stuff and this could be that could turn against me? I so I've never played any of the offering cards. I know that I would say probably before the format got so big when these were, were originally printed, for example, these were much, much better. But even so stuff like this and even the join forces cards, mm. those also were kind of they were very good for the purpose that they were printed at in the times uh, like stuff like collective voyage for example where uh, it was one of the join forces cards where everybody can pay any amount of mana and you search your library for up to x basic lands where x is the total mana that was invested that way and you put them on everybody puts them on a battlefield tapped so it's nice if you can get people to pay mana to ramp you <laughs> with the downside of they're also ramping but the the downside of that can be so massive. You you really have to be building your decks in a very specific way to benefit from either the offerings, joint forces cards, all of that, because it, it's not just you getting one thing. Somebody else is getting just as much as you, and usually you want to limit how much you're giving out. Mm -hmm. That definitely makes sense. And a lot of this stuff is very situational, too, like Sylvan Offering being the good example. Um, you know, would I run that in a generic token deck? Probably not, because even if I maybe have access to doubling season or parallel lives here or there, and will on occasion be able to reap twice as much benefit as somebody else because of a token doubler, mm. there can be times when I don't too, and all all I'm doing is paying a bunch of mana and losing a card to give my opponent the same advantage I have. On the other hand, if I'm like maybe playing a Marwan the Nurturer deck or something, and dropping seven elves in the battlefield off of this is going to give my opponent seven elves too, but it's also going to put seven counters on Marwin and then make her tap for, you know, 22 mana or something absurd like that, <laughs> that I can then use for some, then some other ginormous uh, bit of advantage. So it, it, it's going to depend very much on whether or not this one-sided spell, or this spell that helps my opponents, how much more is it going to help me? And that's going to make a lot of, uh, that's going to be wildly dependent on what your particular deck is and how it's built. Well, and a, a difficult part with some of that too, though, is that like there, it never. Hmm, I can't. Okay, I can't say never. Sometimes it feels though that there are opponents that like you don't realize how dangerous it could be to give them some of these things. Yeah. Because then they might drop a single anthem next turn or like mm -hmm. <laughs> you know a, a moonshaker cavalry and like suddenly uh oh and I, I oh didn't know that that was going to happen but uh, now this is a problem yeah. or an Ashnod's altar or a skull clamp of some kind and it's just like oh dang it or you don't even realize how much all of those extra blockers and extra sacrifice fodder uh, have helped to insulate their Voltron player from sacrifice based removal 
for example. So like sometimes these things really can come up and bite you. So like even the times that you are getting your own advantage, it turns out that your opponents can also have a lot of ways to abuse extra stuff that you give them. I'd be remiss not to mention some reanimation spells in this discussion too, I think. Like incarnation technique is one of my recent favorites. Uh, five mana, you mill five cards, and then you can reanimate a creature from your graveyard. But you can also demonstrate so that you get to copy it, but you also make someone else copy it. And most of the time, you do have control over this. But sometimes, you know, you could give someone something really good that they happened to flip off the top of their deck. You just usually will point it at hopefully the person who's maybe just playing a couple of like elf mana dorks and, and maybe won't get something, uh, you know, huge. Um, and so this has been a really successful card for me. Getting two creatures back is, is very much worth it. There are some that I don't always go for, though, like Exhume. That's the symmetrical reanimation spell for only two mana. Everyone gets back one thing. And that's uh, that, that one feels a little bit harder to uh, mitigate for compared to some of the other like bigger mass reanimation spells. Like when I cast a Living Death, I know that I'm getting the best benefit out of that one in a way that Exhume, where it's just the one-off, feels like it's a little bit harder to really thread that needle as much as I really want to. Um, and then I think also another one that I'm hit or miss on is Command the Dreadhorde. I've seen some really great success with that one, but it does so much damage to you that it feels really <laughs> risky to me, and I feel like I've usually erred towards other reanimation spells instead. And let's be honest, when it comes to just reanimating stuff, I'm gonna love doing it no matter what. The, the last kind of grouping here among this this bunch of cards I think we should maybe talk about is wheels. Mm, okay. So so my thought on, on, on the various wheels, and those are cards that make everyone, you know, do a discard and draw some amount of cards, either a full new seven or the amount they had in their hand or the greatest amount that an opponent controlled or whatever. There's a couple, couple different variants on that. I've seen a lot of games lost by people who cast wheels over the years. I think people have a tendency to kind of tunnel vision down on what this wheel is going to do to my hand without maybe thinking about the broader implications about what it does to everyone else's hand and everyone else's board state. Mm. And I think it's a, it's a result of that. It's a result of people just kind of looking exclusively at what it's doing to me and not thinking about how this is impacting everything else around them. Dana, I have fully seen people cast a Reforge the Soul or a Windfall into a Smothering Tithe. <laughs> so like, uh, that, that's, that, yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't feel good. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing, too, and, and I think that's why Smothering Tithe is so heinously imbalanced, <laughs> because Smothering Tithe, you have to pay two mana in order to prevent your opponent from gaining one. So just automatically, you're investing more mana to, than it, the opponents are getting. That's where it gets so out of hand for me, is mm -hmm. if it were a one-to-one -one ratio, I would understand, but two-to-one, that's... Uh, that, mm. Especially for something so fundamental as drawing cards. Everybody wants to draw as many cards as possible in this game and punishing people at that rate. Oh, let's see. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But that's another that's another topic altogether. We don't need to bash or praise Smothering Tide more than we have before. <laughs> more than the entire community has. Yeah, pretty much. Wheels as a genre of deck, I, I think like it's very clear, like, oh, they know how to abuse this for sure. If you're uh, playing Nekuzar, you're just like probably gonna wheel into a wheel into a wheel into everyone's dead. Exactly, yeah. 
But but like when it is just sort of generally used as like, oh, I hope to refill my hand because I'm playing mono red. I, I think that I've seen some very dangerous situations where it actually wound up benefiting other players a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And that now there are especially other forms of card advantage that I hope that wheels don't need to be the only way to do it. That, those definitely strike me as a very uh, risky proposition that people can. I mean, heck, even the fact that it fills up the graveyard for some players like. Right. <laughs> if you're playing mill against me, girl, that's a risk, too, because I will use my graveyard. Right. So even mill. Can- yeah. Be like yeah. a, a risky thing there too yeah yeah or, or or situations where like someone is in a situation where they are they are taking off maybe about to win and you have an answer in hand to stop them and then the third party does some kind of a wheel to reset everything and and then no one has an answer <laughs> you know maybe they someone draws well maybe not but like that's been a situation I've seen happen before too, where like I, I you are going to stop someone from winning, and it's present it's prevented by a third party casting a wheel. Yeah, well, not even just giving people cards, but giving people the opportunity to use the cards they draw before you have a chance to. Yeah, that's also something that I see happen a whole lot. Is somebody you know they cast a couple spells and then well I have this wheel, and so they tap out to cast the wheel, and then they end the turn they don't have a chance to use any of the cards they just drew and they're passing it over to somebody who is going to untap their lands. They are going to have a full grip and that's when you really come into these situations where you're actively just handing over a whole lot of benefit to three other people before you have a chance to draw whatever benefit you happen to get from casting that wheel. Well, and Matt, you talk about like giving people the ability to cast those things. I mean, what about the cards out there that give extra mana resources to your opponents not just extra cards in hand but like fully Mm -hmm. doubling the amount of mana that everyone's lands produce or there's a really fun one that i've seen a whole lot a descent into avernus a red enchantment beginning of your upkeep it gets two descent counters and then each player creates treasure tokens and takes damage equal to the number of descent counters that are on it and that will definitely speed up a game like it, it has produced some very fun moments but also you're giving out extra treasures. That's extra mana for everybody. Uh, you know, there are rights of flourishing cards to give extra land drops. There are a heartbeat of springs. And you mentioned collective voyage earlier, I think. Like, those can supercharge a game. But sometimes supercharging a game gives players, like, a really fast out into a combo or something like that. And that can be especially difficult to rein in or to control. Yeah, and one of the things about those kind of effects that I, that I don't love either is I feel like there's a weird thing where they disadvantage decks that are built really well. <laughs> hmm. um, it, it, for example, if you've built your deck with a bunch of like, with a, with a really good curve and a bunch of efficient draw and you're building up to this big haymaker series of spells you're going to use to win the game, when suddenly everyone's drawing five cards a turn, then having that ponder in your deck that you've baked in to be a way to bridge yourself from like one step to the next and make sure you have lands in hand becomes way less meaningful. And the person who's just running some, you know, poorly costed 8-8 that they can now, that they would normally not be able to ramp out, but it's been enabled by this, by this, you know, large amount of mana that's been input into the game. I I feel like it's a situation where sometimes it punishes good deck building and rewards quote-unquote poor deck building and I, I, I hate to say that but like deck building where you're like just hoping hey maybe i'll get to that point where i can start casting all these nine drops and someone else enables you to cast them all um whereas your efficient cards then become way less useful so yeah th- 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 i find that maybe not great <laughs> to deal with in a game and a lot of the stuff we've been talking about for the you know, past couple minutes have been like, this is the gambit of the group hug deck, right? Where you sure, are giving yeah. extra stuff to people mm-hmm. and you're hoping that you can indeed control what you give out. 
but sometimes it's hard and it requires a definite bird's eye view of knowing how people may end up using the resources that they need uh, or, or that you will give out to them. And unfortunately, like giving extra cards or extra mana resources are one of the only like universal things that people definitely do want when it comes to making political deals uh, that and potentially like removing mutual problems. In my experience with group hug, those tend to be the things that are kind of the only stuff you can rely on as opposed to like, oh, I'll give you a one one. People don't necessarily always go for that politically mm -hmm. versus give you a card draw. Uh, so that is the, the group hug in particular is always like dancing on a knife's edge because it could very much be enabling your opponents to just take over in a way that you cannot in fact rein in so that's especially difficult for those decks but there are plenty of decks that could use cards like this well and one card too that i think paces itself very well because whenever an opponent gets something you're also getting something when it comes to mana but curse of opulence i think is a card that really walks that line very well because with a lot of these other cards, we talked about how, you know, you get a card, but everybody also gets a card. Well, every mana that somebody gets, you also get that mana. So the, the ratio keeps up and it paces itself. So yes, with Curse of Opulence, you're you're encouraging people to attack, but also it's doing a couple things where you're getting just as much mana that is given out to the opponents, but also one opponent just can't get that. So you can choose the biggest and scariest person. You're not getting them any benefit where some of these symmetrical effects would otherwise be giving them mana, hmm. but also the two opponents who do get mana, you just keep up with that. So the, the the ratio, the pacing of Curse of Opulence, I struggle to think that it's too much of a downside. Yes, you are giving them a little bit of mana, but you're getting just as much in return and the best player doesn't get it. So for a couple of those reasons, I really like Curse of Opulence. I don't think it's a card that is super risky because you're always pacing along with what's happening with it. You're also not just getting extra mana off those gold tokens. In a lot of cases, you might be running a deck that's taking additional advantage. Maybe you're playing Jury Master to review where your commander gets plus one counters whenever you sacrifice a thing. So now you're making gold that's providing you with mana that's also putting counters on your commander. Or maybe you're running some kind of a, a artifact deck where things get buffed based on the amount of artifacts you control. So you're creating all this mana that's also like buffing other things based on you having artifacts. There's just a bunch of of ways to take advantage of them like Curse of Opulence that maybe doesn't exist with a Howling Mind effect or something. You can really lean into the ways that helps you in a way that it doesn't help other people. Another one that, that comes up sometimes is Grasp of Fate. Um, and I think this is a card that I early on in our show was a little bit down on because the issue I had ran into with it was because you're hitting multiple permanents and exiling them with Grasp of Fate, that's three times as many people that have a, have a reason to remove Grasp of Fate. If you're just like oblivion ringing something, then you only, the only person that wants to remove it and get their thing back is the person that has a thing that's been ringed. With Grasp of Fate, you have three people with a reason to remove it. Until I saw someone use it to remove a scary thing <laughs> and then hit someone else's like Demir Signet and a third person's you know, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. The other two people had no reason to remove it to get that signet back. So you, so what it wound up being was I'm like, oh, you can just run this as an Oblivion Ring that gets a little bit of extra value. You just have to not be greedy with it. Mm. But that that that's the kind of thing that like you have to sometimes play a card for a long period of time to figure out how to really work. We talked about working around the downsides. I missed that early on and it wasn't until I saw someone else that knew how to work around the downsides that I then realized how to better use that card. Yeah, I've had kind of similar experiences where if you make sure that the thing that is getting rid of is scary enough that the other two players don't want it to come back, then you're not really working against 
three other players, two players kind of accept like, okay, you got something good for me, but like that thing over there, that was really scary. I don't want that coming back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so there's kind of a, a an understood situation where even the person who has the biggest thing that was removed, they're also thinking, well, I do want this back, but I also don't want them to get their two things. And so it, it, everybody's kind of invested in like, okay, just let's just let this be. So it really has to be something incredibly valuable to one specific person for them to want to get rid of Grasp of Fate. I've had great success with the card. Yeah, ultimately, as with a lot of these, I think it does come down to like, there are ways to mitigate risk in the way that they're played, specifically with like the, the timing of them. There, there are ways to mitigate risk on any and all of these cards. And, and I think like for that, like these are also just like <laughs> like a bunch of the cards that we've read out. I'm just like, these are also just fun cards, like living a little bit on that knife's edge, like is kind of awesome sometimes. And sure, I, I don't like, you know, some of these are just like, mm, I can see situations where they would not work. So for the most part, I've avoided plenty of these. But sometimes getting more of that experience, like you guys were just saying, is actually the important thing. And that can help you lean into the fun of them and find ways that they might be even better than you thought that they were based on your first impression. And so, yeah, a a little bit of risk is how you get the good reward. So I think ultimately a lot of these cards are worth checking out more and more because of the fun stuff that you can unlock with them. So even if they're not necessarily optimized and guaranteed to help you in all of the situations... The times where they do shine, they might shine brighter than what you're used to. And that could be incentive to actually give them more of a try than you have historically. Yeah, you know, what would be interesting here too is like in in two or three years, we might come back and look at a couple of these spells through a different lens. Maybe things in the game will change that will like mitigate the risk on some of them. Maybe we will find out that some of them function a little bit differently once we learn how to play around them, like the grasp of fate thing, for example. Um, so it, it, it's, it, a lot of the stuff is changing, whether the game changes around it or how you change it or, or what you want from the game changes, probably what, how, how you want to play these, these cards as well. So like mm. none of this is, is necessarily set in stone. It's, it's always going to be in flux a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I feel that. I, I think I find myself wanting to try out a few more of these in the future and we'll see whether or not that pays off for me or if like the segues, it blows up in my face. We'll find out. Uh, <laughs> listeners, we've got to hear from you about what your favorite risky cards are out there in the EDH world. What are the things that feel a little bit like you're living on the edge and are they worth it? Which cards do you want to play and which cards do you super want to stay far away from? You got to let us know. But with that, we will call this episode to a close. So fellas, if our listeners want to get in touch with us, where is it that they can find you all? Matt? So you can find me on pretty much anywhere social media can be found at Mathemus55. That's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And don't forget, we stream Wednesday evenings, so make sure you tune in to that over at twitch.tv slash EDHRecCast. We have guests on every single time that we stream, and it's always a super fun time, so tune in. And Dana, how about you? You can find me on the interwebs at Dana Roach. I'm writing articles for EDHREC and Commander's Herald. And you can find all of us together at patreon.com slash EDHRecCast. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me online at Joseph M. Schultz, and you can find the cast online at EDHRecCast. And if you've got a question for us, you can contact us at EDHRecCast at gmail.com. Our thanks go out once again to Chase for assisting me with the post-production of the show. You can find them online at Mana Curves. And listeners, we'll be back at you next week with more data and insights. But until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck.
Safeway makes sure your grocery shopping is easier than ever. Download the Safeway mobile app today to have your own personal grocery guru right in your pocket. Use it to plan your shopping list like a pro. Find recipes tailored to your diet, get personalized deals on the products you buy most, and choose your shopping style. Whether it's in-store, delivery, or drive-up, Safeway's got you covered. Plus, rack up rewards points for every purchase and redeem for free grocery items or discount on gas at participating Exxon or mobile stations. Safeway. Fresh foods, local flavors.